0: direct marketing has once again become an integral part of the overall media mix.
1: Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 43, and today's guest is Brian Rainey, co-founder and CEO of Path to Response. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today I'm joined by my longtime friend, Brian Rainey. Brian's the co founder and CEO of Path to Response. He's a seasoned marketer and original cooperative pioneer, and he spent his entire career building creative solutions to help marketers improve their efforts. By recognizing the challenge that marketers face and understanding which media drives behavior and response by consumers, Brian's been focused on developing solutions to integrate both online and offline media into the cooperative environment. Brian was previously the president of Epsilon Targeting, formerly Abacus, and has held senior marketing roles at the Sharper Image and Sarah Lee Direct. Brian, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate you asking me to join you guys today.
1: As I was thinking about putting this show together, I realized that we've been friends for almost 30 years now. I'm so glad that we've been able to maintain that friendship
0: for so long. Yeah, Mark, you're... Your friendship and uh, your relationship with me has been very uh, important to me over the years, for sure, and helped me a lot.
1: The way we get started, Brian, in these shows is to get something from the guest that's remarkable about you and in prepping for the show. I noted a story you've told about Wayne Gretzky and the New York Rangers. Can you tell us about that?
0: When I uh, graduated college, we were in a uh, a tournament, if you will, for an advertising campaign for Maxwell House Coffee in Washington, D.C., and I happened to pick up a copy of Advertising Age only because Wayne Gretzky was on the cover. Uh, and then I went to go visit my, my dad after, after the tournament was over. We came in fifth in the nation, which was great. And I was looking through the Help Wanted ads in the back of Ad Age. So I was in Binghamton, New York. And at the ripe old age of 21, I drove to New York City and I had an interview with a media director for then Dancer Fitzgerald Sample Direct, which was a small direct agency inside of a tremendously large agency. And it just so happens that the media director was a huge hockey fan, particularly of the Rangers. And when I was in college, one of the few cable stations that we had was WOR. And so I knew all the Rangers players. And so when I walked into the interview, She had a hockey puck of the Rangers sitting on her desk, and we talked hockey for the first 15, 20 minutes, hit it off. And, yeah, then she asked me to come join her as the media department in 1983, and uh, I was the only media person uh, at the time.
1: That's really fun. When I grew up in New York City, WOR ran all the Mets games and Rangers and Knicks games, so I know that really well. It was my go-to station. Thanks for sharing that. You got your start in marketing and direct mail at Sara Lee Direct. This is in the late 80s. Catalog and direct are really important to marketers at this time. What was it like being a circulation manager in those days?
0: It was absolutely fantastic. It was, I got to do so many different things while I was Sara Lee. It was such a great environment. You know, I started there and the business was already doing about 90 million in sales. And when I left there, six years later, we we're doing about 500 million in sales. That was the growth of a tremendous number of different media. We had growth in retail stores and so for a young guy with, without an MBA going to a place that was full of MBAs, it was a great opportunity for personal growth. And, you know, we were, we got to test every single media the, the merchandise didn't change all that much. It was selling pantyhose, slightly imperfect pantyhose through the mail. And so the, the merchandise didn't change that much. So we got very creative on things like list selections and package inserts and data analytics, merge purge, Uh, that's where I became a full on data geek.
1: Then you move on to Sharper Image. That period also seems to be formative for you in direct mail and eventually what you'll do in the co-op space. Tell us how you got to Sharper Image and what your role was there.
0: Yeah, uh, Sharper was just a fantastic brand at the time. They were competing in electronic space in an area probably where they, they had a disadvantage on margin against folks like circuit city and the good guys. And Richard Tollheimer was a brilliant merchant. still is a brilliant merchant and then migrated back to, uh, the kinds of products that were very unique to sharp image that helped build the brand. So again, got to go through a, a growth period in my career, what was really interesting though was that the retail stores viewed the catalog as a competitor and that the catalog was cannibalizing sales away from the stores. So, one of the things that we implemented was to capture a name and address at the point of sale inside the retail stores. And with that information, I did some matchbacks, you know, before matchbacks were kind of the thing to do, of uh, people who came into the retail stores against the mail campaigns. And what we found is that the majority of the customers that were coming into the stores had received the catalog before coming into the store and they were actually performing at a higher response rate than the people that were shopping uh, through the catalog.
1: It's not a surprise that you talk about cannibalization. I worked at Brooks Brothers starting in 2000. And when I got there, we had this nascent web business. We had catalog, we had full price and factory outlet stores. Each of the channels seemed to believe that the others were stealing business from one another. One of the first things that we did was to create a unified database that ultimately showed that the customers who shopped multiple channels were in fact the best customers that we had. Can you build on this conversation about print for us? In the early days of digital, many people were talking about how print was going to go away. How brands use print has clearly changed, but it's still an important part of the marketing mix. Would you agree?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, the web at first was more of an order channel, not necessarily a shopping channel. And so people that received the catalog started to migrate away from the phones and sending in orders through the mail and placing their orders on the web. But you still saw that same kind of demand that you and I saw when you mailed a catalog into a retail store trading area where people, you know, kind of came in all at once. We saw the same thing happening on the website with orders coming in on the web. So print was incredibly important and what started to change for merchants out there was how they were tracking attribution, which became a real key and still is a key problem for many marketers today. I mean, 20 years later, we're really dealing with it now because if you have an attribution methodology that says, I'm gonna look at last click, and somebody comes in through search or ad search or clicked on an ad or anything, but they also received the catalog, but you're attributing that entire sale to what they last clicked on, it's gonna look like you shouldn't mail the catalog. And you and I both have stories of really big brands, you know, that said that they tested this over and over again, that they really don't need the catalog, they can rely on digital media. And the minute they stop sending out the catalog, Guess what? Demand at the web started to dry up as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think that businesses are still seeing that. I've had clients who know that they need to send fewer catalogs and rely more on digital, but they have themselves convinced that the lifetime value of people they acquire through digital is not nearly as high as those people they acquire through catalogs. There's this mix and a match that has to be done. And I think we're both saying that there's a place for print in the digital landscape. So the business is called Abacus. You had the opportunity to move from the brand side of the business to the provider side, and to be part of something that was industry changing. What is Abacus and what did you see in it that made you take the leap?
0: Being a brand and doing the circulation planning, you know, my best list was always my customer list, right? You were generating giant response rates off of your most recent customers for the most part. The next best list after mailing my own customer list was mailing my competitors list. And a lot of industries don't get that. The idea that, you know, you would share your file with me and I would share my file with you and we would exchange customers in hopes that we could attract your customers to my brand and vice versa. And so the whole industry was built off of a co-opetition, if you will, since it's very early days. And so the idea of of abacus was to consolidate all that was to basically say, let's do it in a cooperative spirit where many, many hundreds of brands share their customer lists. And we would do that algorithmically. And even better than my competitors, their best customers, you know, what worked even better than that were multi buyers, folks who bought multiple times through the mail and also bought from my competitive list. Abacus consolidated all that information into one database so that brands contributed their data and then had access to multi-buyers that hadn't purchased from them previously.
1: Tell us how you met Tony.
0: The, you'd mentioned that there's a lot of folks here that are younger and looking for points, pointers and whatnot. And I'm sure you've talked about you know, the importance of networking. Uh, and I had so many opportunities, very blessed to have so many opportunities in a very early career to meet some of the folks in the industry that really paved the way for our industry. And some of those folks were in New York, You know, some of those folks are like a Tony White, but I just wanted to make sure that I stayed close to those folks. And when I was ready to New York, I made a phone call, which was just after one year. New York beat me up pretty well. Uh, I was making about 12 grand a year in 1983 and working a second job at a bowling alley. I got my one year's worth of experience and made a phone call to a friend of mine. And My second interview out of college was was with Sarah Lee, and that's how I got that job. And then six years later, I was ready for a change. I had done a lot of really great work. I had great opportunities and growth. I made a, another call to a friend of mine in the industry. I got my third interview was with Sharper Image. That was my third interview out of college, or third job out of college. And then uh, that's where I met Tony White because uh, Sharper Image was one of the first five brands to participate in the Abacus Cooperative. Tony then started to recruit me for Abacus, and I joined that team in 1992.
1: That's an interesting path for you. That's about the time that I was working at a startup catalog called Tweeds, a unisex apparel business. One of the founders, Ted Pamperin, who I owe a lot of my career to for giving me a chance to be a part of the business, knew Tony, and Abacus was a big part of those early days of my direct mail career. I'm sure that because this was new, there must have been a lot of education and persuading that you needed to do. Brands had already been sharing names, but this was different. Brands were being asked to contribute their data to a cooperative that you, Abacus, were going to maintain and profit from, even though you didn't own the data. What was it like to try and convince people to participate?
0: The biggest obstacles were the people that we were disrupting, you know, which was really the list brokerage business and some circulation managers who felt like the secret sauce of their brand was really in the circulation mix and for them doing the the picking and choosing and whatnot. And so what we tried to do was remove the barriers to testing. And so we told folks, listen, test it, bring your file on board. If it doesn't work, you can just walk away, we'll delete your data. In addition to that, we came in with a price point that was half of what list costs were at the time, kind of on the general market. We reduced the cost and we made it easy for people to test. And then when people got results, they saw how valuable synergistic files with multi buyer activity was relative to other list sources that they were using. And we had very few people that defected once they started to test.
1: The brands were not going to enjoy any of the revenues that you collected. So that was something that brands pushed back on, right? I know it was always a sticking point for me that despite the fact that Abacus was helping us, I somehow felt like we, the brand, should benefit in the revenues that you
0: enjoyed. You know, we had those types of conversations, but... At the end of the day, what really mattered was performance. We had to perform consistently. We had to make sure that we were getting file updates from folks. And you know the more data that we that we got into the database, the more brands that we got to participate, the bigger the universes that we could provide, the more consistent we could provide in response rates. And that alleviated most of those concerns that Abacus was making a lot of money because, our brands were seeing prospect results that they hadn't seen in years.
1: We'll come back to the path of Abacus, the various acquisitions and all, but before we get there today, using cooperative databases is about the preeminent way for a mailer
0: to choose names, right? It is. I would say that uh, the cooperative databases comprise at least 50 to 60% of most brands, and that can be both commercial or nonprofit. It represents at least the majority, if not half, of the circulation the brands are using.
1: From a timeline perspective, you get started in in 1992. The business blows up and then an acquisition. Walk us through that timing. Who purchased the company? And also talk about how privacy played a major role in the business and the industry.
0: Yeah, well, Tony made a bold, very bold move in 1996 to take this public. So not only Um, were we concerned about potential backlash of our clients being able to see our our financials? We were also concerned about issues around privacy. And in fact, what we saw that it actually accelerated the rate of brands coming on board. It, It may not have been the catalyst. I mean, we were growing so fast at the time we were bringing on 30 to 50 new titles a month. And at that point, brands were talking with each other at industry conferences saying, hey, are you part of this thing? Are you part of this thing? And they wanted the validation of their peers inside of the industry. And you know, when they talked to folks, they said, yeah, you should be in here because we're getting great results. So in 1996, we went public. In 1999, we were acquired by DoubleClick. I think we were doing around 60 million in revenue and about 18 million in profitability and the company sold for 1.7 billion dollars it didn't start off that way it just took six months for the sec to approve it and in that time double stock doubled we were at the height of the internet bubble so we sold in 1999 for 1.7 billion dollars most of the principals associated with abacus decided to move on i decided to stick around it was probably the worst financial decision i could have made um, because Immediately after the acquisition, or soon thereafter, the CEO of DoubleClick basically came out and said, "You know, there's just too much heat around the idea of bringing offline and online data together." And then DoubleClick's stock price just plummeted. It went from the you know the mid hundreds down to about four dollars, you know, in just a few years' time in 2005. Uh, the board at DoubleClick decided that they wanted to essentially sell off the company, take it private. We sold to uh, Hellman and Friedman uh, in 2005. And Hellman and Friedman then split us apart into two different businesses again, where Abacus was a standalone entity and sold to Epsilon in 2007, which was terrific. It was a great fit for, for the Abacus team and the Abacus product brand. Uh, and then they shored up the DoubleClick business and sold that for about $3 billion to Google. Uh, which I didn't have any part of, unfortunately. But that was kind of an interesting transaction all the way around.
1: I remember when all that went down. After the acquisition by DoubleClick, I went to meet with their management and to speak about my business and how they thought we could benefit from the matching of offline and online data. It just seemed to make so much sense. Unfortunately, the market wasn't ready for this, and so it was a good idea, but
0: perhaps it was simply too early. And yet, today it's commonplace, right? It eventually happened. Uh, we drew a line in the sand that said we weren't going to do it. The CEO DoubleClick was very public about not doing it, so therefore we ended up being behind. You know when it became more acceptable, if you will, to merge those two data groups together between offline and online.
1: Continuing on the timeline, Brian, how does Epsilon play into this?
0: Well, Epsilon acquired us in two thousand and seven, and. Really, one of the big reasons why they were interested in a company like Abacus was the fact that we're a really good indicator that Mark Friedman just made a transaction at his address yesterday or a month prior, and they used that as information inside of their persistent ID so that they could have best address available without having to you know, go to other types of sources. So we were a great source of information to be able to say, yep, Mark Friedman, and this is the best address. And for the use of their cleansing tools, if you will, for data management businesses, it was a critical tool for that.
1: And you stayed as part of their Epsilon business, running their cooperative division, right?
0: Yeah, and we uh, we grew that business. We made a couple of acquisitions. Uh, we had shut down our international operations, which was sad because that was a really fun experience, but it turned out to be the right thing to do financially. And uh, by 2012, you know, the uh, data business inside of Epsilon was a couple hundred million strong uh, and doing great. Uh, we we had a definitely got hit hard by the Great Recession. And, you know, we still haven't seen mail volumes uh, come back to that you know, recession level uh, back from 2008. I've
1: heard you say that you tried to retire at the Epsilon uh, acquisition. Why didn't you retire?
0: Yeah, probably the same reason you haven't retired, Mark. You know, what you find out pretty soon is all those things about work, whether that's mentoring people, meeting with customers, just engaging and building a team, strategic work really made up a lot of who I was. And uh, I missed all of it. It just sort of went away really quickly. And I found myself very bored uh, because none of my friends were retired. And I think, you know, I didn't have a plan, but even if I had a plan, I don't think that golfing and fishing and traveling full-time was going to be that fulfilling. And oddly enough, I had spent so much time in the data business, you know, there were maybe three or four jobs that I was really qualified to do. And Those jobs were filled, so I ended up having to create my own business (laughs) just so I could have a job.
1: Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now, let's get back to the marketing playbook. Perfect segue, Brian. Let's talk about the business that you've created and what it is. Path to response, and to the point you made earlier, we have a vast audience. We have some people just getting started in their careers. We have others that are more advanced. So there's something to be learned for everyone. Like many businesses, what is Path to Response today um, is not exactly what you set out to create, right? Um, how has it changed over time?
0: Yeah, it was a hard pivot. We, you know, the the whole. Issue around reading results for me was something I thought could be solved. And I just felt like folks were doing it in a way that was biased. You know, attribution in and of itself implies some sort of bias. And so my business partner and I decided to go out and create an analytics tool that people could use to see what their results were doing on a holistic basis. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, businesses were siloed and they still somewhat are siloed. And so there was a competition inside of a portion of a sales dollar or the full sales dollar across all of those media channels. And what happened was a CMO, I know that you looked at this as well, you know at the end of the day, when you got the reports back from each one of the media channels, the dollars associated with what they were talking about was demand for their media added up to be more than the gross sales of the company. And so it, it was a problem. And so we built something that I thought was really pretty cool. It was called a media mix optimization tool, where you look at things holistically of how much was spent in a given period of time and what was the impact on sales. And it really worked. The problem is that it was really expensive to build. Uh, people didn't have budget set aside for an extra tool. You know, that budget had to come from some places, you know, brands in our space don't exactly have a whole bunch of money sitting aside waiting for it to be spent. And on top of that, we provided results back to these brands and we said, okay, here's what you spent. Here's how it did. Here's how you could save or reinvest a million dollars. And a lot of times the reaction was, uh, don't show my boss this, you know, (laughs) They, they weren't aligned for, you know, a holistic, approach to their media campaigns and i think just now people are really starting to embrace that concept so not wanting to go down the path of being a professional services business i didn't want to be consulting on circulation you know in my 50s and god knows in my 60s and so uh we pivoted uh i met up with a couple of folks at one of our trade shows at the namoa conference and you know they convinced me to say listen There hasn't been much innovation going on inside the data cooperative space. There's been this mad gold rush, if you will, to take all the offline into the online space, kind of wholesale it. But there's really been no use of that online information to inform offline decisions. And so we created partnerships with various companies where we could get signals of website visitation and identify those folks who went to the website and didn't transact. And what we found is that particularly for specialty brands or nonprofit uh, brands that maybe aren't the big brands, if you will, inside of the space, you know, somebody who went to the site probably went there with intent, uh, and they probably got there because they received some sort of direct marketing message to drive them to the site. And in today's world where Amazon and Walmart have driven up keywords to an insane price, you know the return on investment for AdWords and digital is becoming more and more difficult. And so getting those signals, if you will, if somebody had gone to the site, combine that with the mail order activity that we have is producing terrific response rates for our clients. When you look at your clients, what kind of verticals are you supporting these days? So, we're predominantly in multi channel merchant and nonprofit. There are other verticals that we will consider going into. There's travel, there's publishing, there's B2B. Those are channels right now that have all gone through some difficult times. Uh, We have plenty of runway to continue uh, bringing on nonprofit and multi channel merchant accounts uh, for quite a while. And we'll migrate into those other channels down the road. Because you have so much data, pre and post
1: pandemic what do the numbers show you about the way that businesses have come back since these
0: last few months it's just been fascinating quite frankly clearly q2 of last year people didn't really know what to do and that set off a chain reaction right the paper mills stopped bringing in as much lumber and now we have a paper shortage uh, printers laid off a whole bunch of people and they were going through their own issues now they're having a hard time getting labor We would see a boom right now in direct mail, if not for the fact that paper's hard to come by and print time's hard to come by. Most of our clients that we have would like to mail more if they could. Uh, So that was kind of interesting. The fact that you had millennials, you know, whenever I would talk to folks, they would say, listen, millennials are not going to adopt direct mail. And turned out with them being locked down as well, you know, catalogs all of a sudden became a source of entertainment. And we saw millennials adopting catalog. And similarly, on the on the other side of the scale, folks who maybe like catalog, like mail order, and that kind of shopping weren't necessarily uh, internet enabled or comfortable ordering things over the web, and they were forced to, to, whether it was for groceries or pharmaceuticals and whatnot. And we saw an adoption rate for folks that were generally older uh, going to the web as well. So it's been a very interesting impact on the industry. I hate to say this in a positive way uh, out of something so horrible, uh, but you know, I don't know that many of those shopping habits are going to change radically, even with the return of being out to, to go to retail stores and whatnot. I think direct marketing has once again become an integral part of the overall media mix.
1: Many brands were able to generate a lot of new customers during the pandemic. This is kind of a nitty gritty question, but were, were those customers consistent for the most part with the customers that had been acquired pre-pandemic or have for whatever reason, uh, because people have a different need today than they might have done from a brand previously, or, are those customers turning out to be a bit different?
0: Yeah, we've done some research on that and we find that there's still consistency with those types of buyers that we're purchasing through the pandemic, which I think is, you know, fantastic. And I do believe that that's a trend that we're going to continue to see. And what we've seen is that digital, as you know, unless you're a brand like Madden, right, that has cachet and can draw people to the website, if you're a specialty brand, doing digital e-commerce, and that's what you relied upon to get your start, you can only go so far there. I mean, you just we see literally hundreds of brands that were formed out of e-commerce that are migrating to print because they've just topped out in what they can do to drive new customers to their brands.
1: Privacy is always an issue to be addressed, it seems. And I know that you have a perspective on the California Privacy Act, and nationally. Care to talk about that a bit?
0: Yeah, the California Privacy Bill has actually turned out to be, I think, a a benefit for the industry, a benefit for the consumer. The, The biggest concern that I have is to deal with 50 AGs and 50 different versions of the California Privacy Law. And I'd like to see some national legislation that adopts many of the things that the California Privacy Law did that would supersede you know 50 different ags and 50 different privacy laws which would be more of a burden on our clients quite frankly than burdens for us to be able to maintain but at the end of the day you know we want consumers to be able to feel comfortable that we're handling their data with great care you know we don't carry sensitive information on our database if somebody hacked into our database they'd be very disappointed with the kind of data that they saw it's mostly encrypted And then on top of that, you want the consumer to feel like she's heard. If she raises her hand and says, I really don't want to be part of your database. You know, we want to honor that and make sure that uh, we're very careful with that information.
1: Well, Brian, it's been great to see how you've been so involved over the years in creating a landmark change to the direct mail industry. I have to admit that it took me a while to come along. I asked a lot of questions and really wanted to get under the hood so I could understand what you were doing with our data. But eventually, my businesses became significant users of Abacus and cooperative databases. So thanks for all the work that you did along the way.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately at the time, I wasn't exactly a seasoned salesperson, so I remember, (laughs) and rather than having a nice printed book or a projector to work with, I think I would write on napkins and draw pictures out on a piece of paper and my artwork wasn't all that great to begin with, but yeah, you were pretty tough. And I would say quite frankly, you know, the, the industry, you know, we, we, Abacus on top of changing the industry in one respect, we also hired a lot of people from the industry and as a result, you know, I would say between the advent of all of the co-ops and the amount of people with this training and analytics and whatnot kind of going down, you know, it became more difficult over time to persuade people into the co-op at one point in time because they were just so afraid of losing their job. But I would say at this point, you know, the brokers have embraced the idea of the co-ops and uh, the the skeptics have all basically seen the performance. And for the most part, uh, we're seeing great success.
1: That's great, congratulations on all that work. Uh, As we come to the end of the show, I do this two-minute drill. I'll ask you seven questions, first words that come into your mind. You ready? Yes. A brand that you admire or that inspires you?
0: Apple, and for a lot of the reasons that we were just talking about and where they took privacy in in an environment that's kind of heated right now, they seem to have taken the high road.
1: The favorite app on your phone? Fitbit. Use it every day. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from?
0: Uh, I had to go back and check, but it was Costco. (laughs) (laughs) Something that you're
1: not good at, but wish that you are.
0: You know, I grew up playing the guitar. I played for 10 years and I was never any good at it. (laughs) Charitable organization that you're passionate about. Well, more than a couple of words, but I I want to be part of a charity where I can reach in and find folks like myself, mentor them and help them get the education that they might not otherwise have access to. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Well, I just traveled to New York and I can tell you teleportation would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing trip. I really enjoyed being in New York. Uh, a lot of the things that I heard about, you know, where the city was, wasn't true at all. There were shootings. I didn't see any, but quite frankly, just I just loved being in front of folks again and loved feeling the energy inside of the city. And lastly, Other than family, what's your most prized possession? Uh, I have a small place up in the mountains, and I can't get there enough. And Brian, where can people reach out to you on social media? Of course, we can be found on Facebook at Path to Response. We can be found at Path to Response LLC on LinkedIn. I do have a Twitter feed at Brian Rainey with the number two after. it. Apparently, there was a Brian Rainey one, so I ended up with a Brian Rainey two. But yeah, and, and anybody watching this can feel free to reach out to me on my LinkedIn as well.
1: Brian, it was really great catching up with you today. Thanks for a great rundown of your career and some helpful hints for our listeners uh, and also for your your impact on the direct mail industry. Stay well and be healthy. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.